this is Daryl. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. You're about to hear episode two of the Total Soccer Show Book Club. It's me talking to George Qureshi, the managing editor of the soccer section of The Athletic. We'll be talking about chapter two of David Goldblatt's very big but very good book, The Age of Football, Soccer in the 21st Century. Chapter two is all about soccer in the Middle East. If you haven't read the book, don't switch off. We have deliberately structured this conversation so that it's understandable and hopefully appeals to people who have not read the book. If anything, uh, these podcasts are almost like a Cliff's Notes summary or highlights of, of each chapter. If you have read the book, we hope that it sort of adds an extra layer to your enjoyment of each chapter. Before that, we have some news to share. So you will have heard on yesterday's Total Soccer Show that the German authorities gave the thumbs up for the Bundesliga to return. Well, today the DFL met and decided that the first day the Bundesliga will be back in action is Saturday, May 16th. And it looks like they're going to pick up pretty much where they left off, which means this coming Saturday, May 16th, 9.30 a.m. Eastern, the Bundesliga will be back. And one of those 9.30 a.m. Eastern games on Saturday is Borussia Dortmund versus Schalke. For American fans, that might be Gio Reyna versus Weston McKenney. Taylor and I will have plenty of coverage of the Bundesliga's return. We'll essentially preview it at some point next week. And then, of course, we'll do match reviews next weekend, the May 16th, 17th weekend. We'll have reviews of those games because soccer is back. It's going to be strange. It's going to be different, but it will be professional footballers in competitive action. So something to look forward to from a sporting perspective. Okay, enough of me rambling on my own. Here's some drum clicks and then some music and then my conversation with George Qureshi. Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by the man who taught Robert Lewandowski how to dance. His name is George Qureshi. Hello. Daryl, I, I come to you and I say, Daryl, please read this, um, you know, several hundred word, very serious um, academic <laughs> piece of writing on, on global football. And you say to me, yes, I will, but you have to watch this, this white man dance. And, it's, a, uh, it's a fair yeah. trade, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was the most white man dancing I've ever seen. I, think. <laughs> I don't think it was that bad. Okay, this is my hot take. It wasn't that bad. You know, it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. It was like, it was a dad dance, right? It is was a dad dance, but he's, I don't know, just as a, sort of this um, global superstar athlete, for some reason I expected a higher standard. I mean, I'm surprised that he has a TikTok in the first place. Yeah. Why, why, does he, why does he have one? Maybe he's just trying to entertain himself. Maybe he saw Alfonso <laughs> Davis and thought, oh, I could do that. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> I mean, my recommendation, get a Switch, play Mario Kart with your friends. That's what I've been doing. Very so, nice. Yeah, yeah they, the first episode of this book club was almost delayed by George playing Mario Kart with his Switch. <laughs> wait, no, wait, no, it was not. <laughs> we, had to push back. we had to push back a couple of days, right? What? What? Are you, what? No. This is true. No, I, <laughs> I have the text message receipts for this. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> I have no recollection of this, um, but uh, but sure. Okay, whatever. <laughs> so, so we are here to talk about David Goldblatt's book, The Age of Football, Soccer in the 21st Century. And we're talking about chapter two, which is focused on the Middle East. And the, the title is Regime versus Street versus Musk, which I had no idea what David Goldblatt was talking about with that title until I read the chapter. 
and it makes a lot more sense. Um, so that's kind of the overarching theme for this whole chapter, right, George? Yeah. And, and okay, so let's start here. The first thing you said to me when I signed on to Skype was, this was not as much fun as the previous chapter. And I was like, no, I, d- I totally disagree. And then I said, wait, why are we talking about this right now? Let's, yeah. let's hit record and then talk about it. So tell me, I, I thought I, I actually enjoyed this more, I think. Um, but I, I would like to hear uh, from you why, why it was less fun. I think uh, two reasons, right? Um, the first reason is I found more points of optimism in the chapter about African football. And I feel like um, in this chapter, if it's regime versus street versus mosque, then it's definitely regime and Musk tend to come out on top a lot more than street. Um, it's a, even to the point where the, the whole chapter closes with the sentence, sadly in football, more often than not, hope will kill you too. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fine. Right? <laughs> but- so, so there's that, which is, you know, that's not David Goldblatt's fault, right? That's maybe just his perception, possibly correctly of the state of Middle Eastern soccer, um, especially in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. Uh, but then there's also, I mean, this is more of a cultural thing, I think. I think I found it harder to track um, the, across the different nations and the different teams and mm, the different mm-hmm. narratives about each country. Just because what I found is I'm not as familiar um, with Middle Eastern culture and the names of the teams started to blend together a little bit for me. And I recognize that's 100% my fault. That's my cultural bias. And I think I just found African football easier to absorb than Middle Eastern football. Does that make okay, sense? That's, that, yeah, that's interesting. And, and, and every team, ha- every every country has at least one Al-Ali, right? So yeah. <laughs> there are, I went and counted. I went to the Wikipedia disambiguation page. <laughs> there are 14 teams across the Middle East with the name Al-Ali. But but here, here I'm going to argue something though, which is that there there is no character in the first chapter as great, um, and I mean that in like a literary sense as as Saadi Gaddafi. Okay, so yes. right, so so counterpoint first of all, but great Second you mean all, terrible and horrific, terrible and scary. Yeah, just like as epic. I, I would say I went I, yeah. like you. I went and searched something online, and it was a a video of of Saadi Gaddafi, and it's have you have you done this? It's um, I haven't. <laughs> it's from a, a friendly between Libya and. Uh, and Canada in 2003, and Gaddafi is substituted off the field. And before he leaves the field, he he has shaken hands with every single Canadian player. And then play resumes, and then they cut back to him, and he is shaking hands with every single person on the Canadian bench. And then he goes, and he is um, about to shake hands with a policeman on the sideline, and then sort of like gives him the psych, you know, move where he like puts his hand out, the policeman puts his hand out, and then he turns around and and and, and turns away. <laughs> and it's like you are such a Sorry, can I say prick on this show? Um, you just spoiled did. Brat? So, uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, but but yeah, I, I get what you're saying, and I think that um, I think that this was maybe a chapter made for for our friend Taylor because he has spent time in uh, in Kurdish the Kurdish part of Iraq, right? And, yeah, and, and and actually, and and Turkey, although Turkey is not treated in this chapter, which I found interesting. So um, so yeah. Uh, you know, I I feel you, but I think for me, you, you said there were more points of optimism. I think that. What I found hopeful about this chapter is a um, the ways that uh, some of these these ultras, especially when you talk about Egypt and Morocco and and Tunisia, how they have sort of um, marched from the stadiums into the street, right, so to speak, yeah. uh, or or brought or brought um, the repression of the street into the stadium, more, more, more to the point, right, um, and 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 I guess like. In all of these instances, like across North Africa and the Levant and and uh, the Gulf, um, the contradictions of just sort of, you know, the way that the world is set up right now and the way that it's sort of intolerable for regular people is is really heightened. And and I found that to be more the case here because there are more links in, in to my mind to um, the the global center of of football, Europe, 
um, and FIFA uh, that, that draw that out and make it really obvious. And I think that, you know, anytime that happens, there's more opportunity to change. Are you with me, though, that it's ultimately a, a downer just as a, as a narrative? Um, and you take the sort of the example of the um, Ultras Alawi, that's the, the Al Ali um, Ultras in Egypt, uh, and how they're so involved with um, protesting the original uh, Mubarak regime. They're sort of unofficially involved in the Tahrir Square protests that bring him down, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but then they start protesting the, uh, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces that replaced him. And my understanding is as the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces are on the way out, um, I think they're handing power over to, is it Morsi? Um, that they, there's the Port Said massacre. And right. eventually, um, all ultra groups in Egypt are declared terrorists, essentially, and mm -hmm. the entire movement is crushed. So that I see it as a sort of, you know, people rise up through the organizing principle and the organizing power of soccer, and it's kind of inspiring. But ultimately, the regime wins because the regime crushes them. Well, first of all, the regime isn't the same regime through through that time period, right? So that's interesting yeah. because the one the, the the you know it was um, it was Mubarak's uh, outgoing regime, as you noted, yep. that that retaliated against these ultras. Um, and and should we just describe what happened there, Daryl, so that anyone who didn't read um, knows what happened? Do you want to give? I, I could do it. Um, or or, or if specifically you the the Port Said massacre. Yeah, yeah yeah like what happened there because that that was that, that was 2012 i want to say like january yeah. and, and that was right before we started howler and i was thinking back i was like oh, i don't remember that as well as i wish i did and I, I think it's because it was right before we started howler and and i think if it had happened right after it, it would have been a focus for us it would be it would be something that we would have um really really latched onto and, and covered but we didn't and i'll be honest the, the story is somewhat complicated right it's not it's not particularly straightforward in terms of who's doing what but uh, and that's why i found it um confusing to remember if that makes sense i think david does a really good job in this book of laying out exactly what happened um so it's as the sort of military government is about to to hand over power um, but the Al-Hali ultras have been sort of, you know, protesting them, chanting against them. I think they call them dogs um, in some of their chants or some of their um, some of their TIFOs. Um, and correct me if any of this is wrong, George. Um, and what happens, as far as I understand it, is at Port Said, which is Al-Masri's, the team Al-Masri, it's their home stadium. Um, the Al-Masri fans are essentially the, the military government turns a blind eye and the authorities around that game turn a blind eye to Al-Masri fans taking in um, potential weapons. And then at the end of the game... Literally, the lights go out and the doors are locked and the authorities look the other way and the Al-Masri fans attack the Al-Ali fans and many, many, many people end up dead or injured. So I think it's a little unclear by design, but I, I don't. I wouldn't. I don't know if it's accurate to say it was the Al Masri fans. I think this was really orchestrated by the government. Um, okay. And, so who's and, doing and, the attacking then? And actually, I found that confusing because I couldn't find a motive for if it was Al Masri fans, as I assumed. Why would they be attacking the Al Ali fans? See, my my yeah, my assumption is that it wasn't Al Masri fans. It was it was um it was it was you know plainclothes police officers, people who, I see. People who felt um, uh, undercut by, by the role that these, these ultras had taken in, you know, in basically the overthrow of Mubarak's regime, right? Got it. Um, which, which led, you, you mentioned the handover, it was being ha handed over to, to the Muslim Brotherhood government that had won the popular election. So yes. right, right there we have, we have that tri, tri, you know, triumvirate of like the, the, the state, the, the mosque and the street, right? Mm -hmm. In one, in one stadium, uh, essentially like, you know, um, 
And so, yeah. And, and what happened? I, I don't know that I would say they were crushed. Like what, what he describes is that, um, you know, much like the Liverpool fans, you know, after, after the, the terrible tragedy at, at Hillsborough and then again, um, uh, at the European Cup final, um, <clears throat> you have a situation where their, their grief and their anger turns inward in a way. Like they become, um, really obsessed for, for, for good reason yeah. with this tragedy that has, that has befallen them. And, um, and so their their sort of energy and their their outlook sort of dissipates from the wider scene and the political movement that they had been, become part of, and it turns inward, which is unfortunate. But it's not the end necessarily of like of of the expression of that discontent, right? Oh, which is which is what he's describing across North Africa. But there's also there's a later paragraph um, in that same section that it, it's not talking about the Al Ali ultras. It's a different group of ultras within Egypt uh, where there's some sort of incident, and then the. The, the armed forces government is essentially back in power, right, after they've overthrown the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and they use this incident for the Egyptian court to rule all ultras groups uh, as terrorists. Right, yeah. So that's, that's, that's right. like the final death blow to the ultras is the way, the way that I see it. Yeah, I mean, so... I would be careful using terms like final, I guess. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, when uh, reading this chapter, I couldn't help but really just be sort of awestruck by the way that, like, just this whole swath of, of, of the world is ruled by these really repressive regimes. And yeah. it's so disheartening on the one hand, but it's also like just an, ex I guess, you know, it's just like a snapshot of where we are in the world right now, like in history. Um, and, and what I think this chapter showed me was that these things are, are really in flux. This is not, you know, you, you couldn't, you know, saying this, this is final or that this is, um, and I, I'm not, I, I'm not saying this is what you were saying, but, but to, to think of this as like the, 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 you know, the frozen state of the world would be to look at like, you know, medieval Europe and say, oh, well, it's always going to be, you know, ruled by yeah. superstition and, and warfare and, you know, um, um, and just really, you know, and, and, and again, not to, not to compare medieval Europe to, to the modern Middle East. There are a lot of, you know, the, that, that would be really problematic, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like to, yeah, to yeah. look at any place in time and say it's stuck in time is just not, not accurate. And, and, and what I think David's describing is this, like these countervailing forces that are really, really challenging each other. And yeah, it's pretty, pretty bleak for, for the street these days, but there are these places where soccer you know, has, has like provided these, these, um, these little windows of hope for me where, you know, this expression of like wanting something better and frustration and just like changing, you know, the desire to change things is, is breaking through. And that to me is like, Oh, what I love about soccer so much. It's like, wow, <laughs> it's so guess, powerful. I guess the mistake I've made, I definitely concede this is the mistake I've made is reading up to the point where the author leaves it. And assuming that's the final state of things, right? And I think I think you're right that even if like ultras are declared uh, terrorist groups and it's not looking good, that the lesson of this the lesson of this chapter is that at some point the people will gather back together and possibly through soccer will challenge authority again. Yeah, I mean, and even even like if you just like toward the end of the chapter, and if we're you know we're not going chronologically now because. Um... Uh, if, the way David wrote it, because because yeah, he goes I'm, I'm skipping, right? yeah, yeah, and I'm skipping back to the end of the chapter where he discusses the Gulf states. But you know, the power of those Gulf states is purely based on petrochemical money, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's purely. And so, if you look at this as like, you know, if you look at this as you know a slice of time, what um, the UAE was founded in what the early 70s, I want to say. And so, it's like it's a pretty bleak picture uh, where guest workers, and we'll discuss this, are really mistreated, like maybe a step above slavery. Um, However, uh, 
you know, it's, it's like, that's relatively a recent <laughs> phenomenon because this, this, these countries didn't exist <laughs> several decades ago. Yeah. And, uh, pretty soon, I, I think, you know, in world, this world, historical terms, we're going to be moving on from, from like a reliance on, on gas and, and oil and, and all that. So, so, you know, this could be a fleeting moment where like, yeah, there's a lot of oppression and there's a lot of like bad stuff going on, but, um, you know, uh, I, 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 I that's that's to me that's what mbs and 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 cutter by trying to revamp their societies are trying to like prepare for a, a world after uh you know a time when when they are supreme just because they they own what's underneath the ground hey this is daryl cutting in to let you know that today's total soccer show is sponsored by podium Wear, a family-owned business in saint paul minnesota since we did our first Podium Wear ad read a couple of days ago, we've received a lot of positive feedback from people who are fans of Podium Wear already and are really glad that Podium Wear are working with the Total Soccer Show. Podium Wear is a custom team apparel manufacturer in Minnesota that is turning the world of team soccer kit ordering on its head. They provide custom designs in a full line of soccer apparel, all made to order in their St. Paul factory. In normal times... We'd be talking in this ad about how great this process is, um, how your experience ordering from Podium Wear for you know, your kits or your kids' club teams, how that would be infinitely easier if you used Podium Wear. But these aren't normal times. We understand that no one is necessarily uh, ordering football kits, or at least it's not their top priority right now. Because of the COVID-19 crisis, Podium Wear has started making face masks for you to wear while you're out and about, while you're on the sideline of a soccer match, or even if you want to wear one during your workouts. So you can buy a mask for yourself, or you can customise masks for a team. And then maybe keep Podium Wear in mind for, fingers crossed, when things get back to something resembling normal and we can order soccer kits and play soccer again. So go to PodiumWear.com and get your custom mask today. Then bookmark them for when you're ready for your next soccer kit order. That's PodiumWear.com. Check them out today. Okay, let's get back to talking to George Qureshi. Well, let's stick with it then because, the, yeah, the final, um, the final sort of sections of the chapter are mostly focused on Saudi Arabia uh, the UAE um, and Qatar, which is essentially the ownership groups of Newcastle in the near future, Manchester City, um, and PSG, <laughs> PSG yeah. and the front of Barcelona's jersey, right? And NYCFC, don't forget NYCFC. Yeah, I mean the whole city football group, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I I was really taken with the uh, David Goldblatt's reminder of how insane it is that Qatar is going to host the 2022 World Cup. There's that section at the start of him. It's before he goes into the kafala system and the workers. Um, just reminding everybody that the, the size of this country and the fact they're going to build 12 new stadiums and an entire new city and hundreds of hotels um, and the temperature is, what, 50-something uh, Celsius, uh, which is, what, 120 Fahrenheit, um, that it it really makes no sense that Qatar is going to host a World Cup. It was a a, a nice, fresh reminder of everything we felt in 2010. And it's also like a reminder that FIFA is complicit in like a lot of the, the yeah. ills that we see here, right? I mean, this is FIFA was bought off and and essentially awarded like its most precious asset to to a company, you know, to a, to a country that, yeah. um, <laughs> like, like if you were just lining this up against other countries that, that would bid for this, there's just not much of a, not much of a case, but, um, yeah. but yeah, there it is. Um, and what, what's also know, striking is the, the thing that ended up, um, potentially changing the kafala system into something more, uh, more just wasn't pressure from FIFA. It was pressure from Saudi Arabia because of the, the blockade that's still ongoing and the fact that mm. Qatar needed a bit more global goodwill um, it, to support them through the blockade. That seems to be, or at least David Goldblatt argues, that that seems to be the reason that Qatar finally 
address this massive, massive blemish on the uh, the construction project of the World Cup. Yeah, he has that. He has that little detail where he says in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, you could be punished for wearing a Barcelona shirt with the Qatar Foundation yeah. uh, symbol on it. Um, <laughs> just amazing. Uh, in any of those countries, you can be punished for doing like all manner of things that we take for granted here. So um, that's not great. Uh, and then he has this detail about. Um, the number of deaths that they've tallied from, from yeah. heat and exhaustion and just like these really dire working conditions. Um, and the fact that like people aren't free to leave their jobs or like, you know, <laughs> have any rights. Yeah. Um, and he says that, you know, we could very well, uh, be in a situation where there's going to be one death for every minute of soccer played in the 2022 world cup. And so my question coming from that, Daryl, and I was going to save this till the end because this was the, the section that David ended on, but I want to ask you like ethically, what, what is our responsibility? Like as fans, like how do we, how do we approach the world yeah. cup given, given this, this knowledge? We've talked about this before, right? Um, the, the one thing I would say is definitely the total soccer show is probably in 2022 going to be in a position where we could afford to go to the world cup but this is a World Cup that we won't be going to, right? So that's like a the mini boycott that Total Soccer Show will do. But there's no way that we won't cover it because it's just too tempting to cover it, right? I want to know what the US is doing, what England is doing, and I'll be I'll be swept along with the whole narrative of the teams playing against each other. I mean, similar to Russia, right? It's not that dissimilar to Russia. I'm like not happy at all with the uh, the Putin regime in Russia but ended up still just covering the World Cup and covering the football. And I can't find a way to, I can't find a way out of that that leaves me feeling okay. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really a, kind of a bind right i mean yeah. and and you know honestly it's hard to exist in the world today like I, I have an amazon prime membership and i feel really conflicted because i hear about like how they're treating workers so it's like you can't really yeah. escape this it's like just on a different scale and it, you know it's but um you, but can yeah, always, I mean, you can always find an excuse right like i didn't have an amazon prime membership um until i needed to get like a lot more medical supplies delivered to me quickly and it seemed like the best possible way and so i made the selfish decision to get an amazon prime membership so i could get medical supplies shipped the the next day yeah and i don't feel great about it but i also need it kind of needed to survive but also probably could have survived just less comfortably by waiting a few more days or risking a trip to cvs or walgreens or right aid so yeah so i so the thing i'm feeling here is like dissatisfaction with myself because i don't really have a great answer for this like yeah uh, <clears throat> it's it's um it's uh it's a really frustrating and kind of you know, demoralizing position to be in because you yeah. want to, you want to do this thing that you love. And like, you know, we're alive for what, 80 years <laughs> if we're lucky mm-hmm. on this earth. And we'll get to see, you know, uh, a, a number of world cups and, and everyone that we don't get to see is like, wow, that's what a, what a bummer. But at the same time, like what, what is like anything mean if like we can just sort of stomach this and be like, you know what? Um, it's too bad that there were people who died, literally died because they needed to build that stadium or they wanted to build it in that way. Um, <clears throat> But I guess I'll just, you know, turn it on, get my Budweiser commercials and, you know, um, cheer when uh, the team in one color scores and the team in the other color, you know, uh, gives up a goal. But uh, look, uh, and that's the thing. I don't have a great answer for that. It's something I need to just, I guess, think more about. I have another um, I have another uh, sort of dilemma to pose to you. Uh, and this one takes us back earlier to, to the Iraq section. And again, uh, FIFA, you know, <laughs> did this really, really um, lackluster investigation of of the Iraq FA? Uh, Uday Hussein yeah. was in charge of it, like really crazy, um, you know, sadist uh, Saddam Hussein's son. And um, they said that he uh, he had the players when they failed to qualify for the World Cup. I think the '94 World Cup kick 
rocks until they broke their feet. Yeah. Um, and my question to you, you is you like, you asking me if I would have done that. <laughs> yeah. Would, uh, you seem pretty ruthless. Um, but, but, uh, but if you were on the field playing against this Iraqi team mm. and, and you knew that they were going to be tortured if they lost to you, what is your responsibility then? Like, I'm, I'm just curious, like this is taking us out of the realm of David's book. Like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't like consider these questions, but I'm curious. It made me think like if I'm playing against a team and I know they're going to like, don't I have an ethical obligation to lose that game? Um, and then, and then you get into a bigger question about like the power of like the players versus the people who are running these teams. And clearly there's an imbalance there, but I'm curious what you think. Well, I think it's like an unfair question because do, do they definitely qualify for the world cup? If they, they beat the team I'm on. You I don't know. know it doesn't matter. Does it matter? Why, why does that matter? Because it's, I mean, it, is this like the is this like the ultimate game before World Cup qualification? And we know for sure that Iraq haven't qualified. If let's I just say let's win. just say you're playing a soccer game and you know that if if the other team loses, they will be tortured. <laughs> what do you do? Oof. I want to say right now that I I would sort of like talk to teammates and we all would agree that to not to not let that happen. I would I would honestly maybe look for a third way out where we smuggle the players out with us afterwards. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think always it, it shouldn't have to be like an A versus B um, decision. Yeah. But I'm also really aware that I'm missing the context of, you know, my team and my team wanting to qualify for the World Cup and how much we've, how hard we've worked to get there and how many like qualifying rounds we've been through to get to this point. And you may end up putting your own, your own uh, qualification aspirations before uh, the survival of, of the opposition. Grove, I, think you're, I think that's entirely you're a, you're a monster. You're a monster, but you're honest. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it brings me back to the introduction. Remember last, last time we talked, we, we, I, I highlighted that, that passage from David where he said, like, fundamental to this game is the idea of play. And if, if, if uh, any, anything is putting its, if any entity is putting its finger on the scale, it, it loses that fundamental element that makes soccer soccer. And so yeah. I would argue this is not, you know, this is, this is a really great illustration of that, how just the interference of these like spoiled rotten like just evil children yeah um you know they uh, really stood out right Sadi Gaddafi and Uday Hussein stand out as the two sons of dictators who really were just toying with people's lives for their own their own football enjoyment but also their own sort of getting off on their own power for for anyone who's not reading along can we just say Gaddafi Sadi Gaddafi the son of Muammar Gaddafi um you know who was yeah Libya uh so he was the owner the manager and the captain of Al Ali Tripoli (laughs) and he was the only person on the field who was allowed to have uh, his his name on his shirt um and the commentators could only say his name and so you just imagine this also he was also the president of the Libyan Football Federation at the same time Yeah. yeah Yeah, totally, totally fair. Um, so anyway, uh, like it's just just an unbe- unbelievable level of like sort of maniacal, yeah, uh, just spoiled, rotten, uh, just yeah. And if, and if you if you let me, George, I'll go an extra level of detail. There's the game Al Ali Tripoli against Al Ali uh, Benghazi, uh, where Benghazi go one nil up, um, and then Tripoli, I think, get a, a really uh, strange penalty, and the Benghazi players start protesting. They eventually they try to leave the field. They're forced back onto the field at gunpoint to see out the game. They lose three one, and afterwards, Sadi Gaddafi is quoted as saying, "I will destroy your club. I will turn it into an owl's nest." Um, so after a later protest after Benghazi uh, relegated, the fans riot and they sort of attack the Libyan Football Federation. Um, he really does go back and on the 31st anniversary of Muammar Gaddafi's uh, revolution, he levels the team and the stadium and everything that ever existed and really does reduce um, Ali Benghazi to rubble. 
Yeah, it's sort of like later on in that chapter, the, the the bar the Bahrain the Bahrain episode where you know the protesters gathered in this big square. Um, I think it was like a big roundabout actually, and um, there were some national team players there as well, and they were sub- subsequently rounded up, and um, they they discovered that the the guy who was you know one of the sheikhs who was um, you know the the team I, I think he was in charge of the the country's FA Bahrain's FA, and also a, a member of the FIFA executive committee uh, was sort of responsible for you know monitoring the players and 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 sort of ratting them out if they participated in these protests. Yeah. Um, so the reason it came to mind is because they they after this they totally bulldozed that that roundabout and just basically reconfigured the city so that it no longer even like existed as a geographical feature in the city but um but this guy basically went into like self-imposed exile for a few months and then he's back he's like just as david puts it he's on the global soccer circuit again and you know just like it's like no big deal and so i'm sure like there are american <laughs> sunil galati who is also on the fifa exco right or whatever it's called now um he, he probably you know goes and sits in a meeting room with this guy and yeah. like just makes this it's like disgusting and and it's just like it How? makes me feel gross uh, how just, is that allowed to happen? I know you don't have a particularly high um, opinion of FIFA, but how how do you think that is allowed to to go down with no challenge? I mean, it's not going down with no challenge. It's 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 like the challenge is like there's the way I see it. There's a there's a you know if David if David is dividing this the, the power centers here between mosque and street and and uh, regime, regime um, you have a similar divide in, in world soccer, right? And you have, you know, the people who are in and control things and they're a minority. And, you know, the U.S. Soccer Federation is, is an example of this. I brought this up last last week. They have a, I mean, it's a cartel. They have a, they have a monopoly on the national team in this country. And FIFA, FIFA you know, distributes those monopolies. They're, they're basically franchises to, you know, one, one group of people in each country. And if you don't have that that sort of license to run the national team and participate in the World Cup, then then you're left out. And and t- you know countries run these you know in better ways and worse ways. And I think we've seen a lot of really really poor examples of of you know in in the previous chapter about sub-Saharan Africa and now here where it's abused. Um, the governance is is better here in the U.S. Um, but even here in the U.S., like you know, as part of Concacaf, <laughs> we you know this our our federation is is doing like really intimate business with probably the most in, in the most corrupt um federation confederation in in the world i mean and so it's it's really difficult to ex- extract yourself if if you're interested in doing that and there's there's so much money to be made from the passion of all the fans and you know people who want to spend money um buying video games and buying jerseys and buying tickets and watching on tv that that um you know there's there's really not a, ho- a whole lot of distance uh, incentive to uh to break it up all right. I mean, I mean, that's my that's my explanation. Is that does that make sense to you? Yeah, you're essentially saying they don't want to they don't want to cause too much friction and get in the way of just getting on with business and making some money. I mean, it's there's it's so lucrative. It's so lucrative. I mean, it's crazy. Um, I mean, and and so this brings us to to the Gulf, right? I mean, I, and stop me if I'm moving around too much, but like, no, no, I'm with you, Daryl. Daryl, why, why, why are you know why why is the UAE why why is Abu Dhabi and and Dubai and and Qatar why are they buying into and then oftentimes not even buying teams, but just like buying sponsorships. Uh, you know, wh- what is Cutter buying when they put the Cutter Foundation uh, on Barcelona's jersey? They're not even selling anything. The foundation doesn't sell anything. What are they doing? What are they buying? <laughs> um, so my read on it is it's essentially a projection of global power. It's a lot about soft power. And especially with Qatar, as I understand it, it's about getting out from under Saudi Arabia. And in order to do that, you really need to sort of make friends around the world. 
Yeah, you're buying legitimacy. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what it is. And you're buying the right to basically farm, you know, the resources in your in your region and and treat the people who live there however you want. I mean, that's that's exactly what it is, right? And I've also I'm it struck me reading a chapter um how there's initial investment in local soccer, like Saudi Arabia investing in local soccer since the 70s and Qatar initially investing around about 2003 you got the Q League. Um, and the Aspire Academy opens in 2004. It seems like they they all reach the limits of what could be done with football at home and realize that, you know, big European teams is is where it's at and that's where we've got to put the money. Yeah, I mean, and they're using what? Casillas and Xavi and, yeah. and the, De Bo the De Boers to launder their image. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. And, and it's, you know, but like, but like, we're also doing it. If you wear, if you wear a Barcelona jersey, unfortunately, you are also part of that. Um, and, and, and that is, that is why it's, it is such an excruciating predicament that they are putting us in because it's like the commercialization of the game has also made the people who, who are consuming it. It, complicit. I mean, it's just really, yeah. it's really, really so complex. And I think and, back, yeah. I think back to that Barcelona jersey sponsorship, and I remember immediately preceding that, it was UNICEF, right? Which yeah, is and the, before that, what was it? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. So it was great, right? No, no sponsor, and it, it really made me believe in that Mesquite and Club, right, thing that Barcelona mm -hmm. had going on, and especially a team that's bringing all these players through La Masia through the academy, and then instead of having a jersey, like a traditional jersey sponsor, you have UNICEF, which if people don't know is basically the UN charity for children, right? Um, and then to switch that out for the Qatar Foundation, that that's a massive, <laughs> massive sea change, and I can only think that essentially. Um, Qatar made Barcelona an offer that was just too much money to refuse. Wasn't it like thirty million dollars a year or something? It was. It was something like that. It was a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, but like, is that so much money that you can't refuse it? I mean, I guess it is. But like, but you could refuse it. And what would happen yeah. then? I guess you would be saying, "Well, we are. We have principles that that are that are more important than competing with Real Madrid." Yeah, I guess that's it, right? Maybe Real Madrid outspends you, and so you need that extra thirty million a year. But who's on who's on the who's on the front of Real Madrid's jerseys? I believe I believe it was the Emirates, right? Uh, Emirates Airlines. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, like <laughs> it's like it's amazing. I mean, th these the, these like petro petro states are like you know funding funding <laughs> the biggest rivalry in world football. Yeah, and and who's benefiting really? Like Ronaldo, I guess, and Messi. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's pivot to something more positive. Um, I didn't know, George that Palestine was recognized as a FIFA nation. There's this great right. line in the book from David Goldblatt about how yeah. Palestine's very presence in World Cup qualifying and in FIFA world rankings gives Palestine the status of a nation in the world. And as an example, um, Palestine in the UN, it's been a non-member observer state of the UN since November 2012, which is essentially right, saying right. you're not a nation, you're not you're not one of us. We can only give you this this limited uh, limited status, right? But FIFA has essentially given Palestine uh, full status as a as a nation, as a national team, as a state. Yeah, I mean, it's the same. Like Puerto Rico is the same way. Like, but FIFA has more FIFA has more members than the UN does, and so yeah, um, you know, and, and yet, and yet, there's still a need for the Conifa World Cup, right? Which is like yeah. the Stateless Peoples World Cup, and so you have Kurdistan and the ba the Basque region, and uh, you know these really wonderful breakaway, you know, wannabe breakaway, the Catalan region, like breakaway republics or, or, or nations that want to be part of it, and so yeah, like I love that as well. I mean, that was again another bright spot for me. It's like they, you know, Palestine can't get can't get justice um really in the world but but through through fifa and because fifa sort of threw its hands up and sent it back to the un they were able to say oh yeah these uh these settlements they're they're illegal <laughs> yeah it's like the only time that that's sort of been recognized right is by um what a un advisor to fifa 
more or less. But then FIFA kicked it down the road and wouldn't officially rule on it, is what I know. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. of course. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, this is Daryl cutting in to let you know that today's Total Soccer Show is sponsored by Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an insurance marketplace. So if you're looking to get life insurance, here's how Policy Genius can help. They are the experts. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies all in one place. That's the really important thing. It takes just a few minutes to compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price because it's all on policygenius.com. So that doesn't just save you a lot of legwork, a lot of clicking. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will then handle all the paperwork and all the red tape all for free. They're in contact with the life insurance companies every day, monitoring developments and helping customers navigate every step. So if you're looking to buy life insurance right now, but you don't know where to start, head to policygenius.com, America's leading online insurance marketplace. What, yeah, are the, the Israel, what, are the, what are the positives did you take, George, from this? Well, the, the Israel section was really interesting, I thought. Um, yeah, it was all news to me. I, I found myself ignorant of um, Israeli football until reading this chapter. Oh, so so Howler's very first intern, a, a guy named um, a guy named Sam Patterson. Um, he wrote one of the one of the last issues that I worked on. He wrote a big feature on Beitar. And okay, it was fascinating, fascinating. I mean, this is this is the team that is uh, aligned with the right wing, and they 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 had never signed a um, a Muslim player, and they finally they got a new owner who was this shady dude who had like ties to Miami and Angola and was possibly an arms dealer, and he signed two uh, Chechen Muslims. So they weren't like they weren't like Palestinian Muslims; they were Chechens. Yeah. Um, and and the fan base was so upset that they torched their own team's training facility, yep. uh, burned it to the ground. And then, yeah, they're also involved in some drug dealing. Uh, La Familia, they're called, like, you know, self-styling after the, the Italian mafia. Um, and after they attacked uh, another fans, uh, another group of fans with like an axe and, and I think killed killed this person. Um uh, they finally attracted the attention of the Israeli state and were investigated. But there's a there's a breakaway team called uh, Beitar Nordia. Yes, and, um, that's been a really really great story. And um, yeah, it's like it's a, such an interesting contrast to to a lot of the the rest of the region. For one thing, they play in Europe, right? The the national team and and, yeah. and, and in Champions League. Um, and for another, uh, it's not necessarily a case of like this repressive dictatorship um, that, that a, a lot of the rest of the story is about, but it's, but it's still like kind of a, it's still a society where, you know, um, the left is in retreat and where, yeah. you know, Likud and, 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 you know, those forces of the right are, are predominating. And so it's, it, to me, that's fascinating. That's like an interesting echo of the rest of the region, even though obviously there's some internal <laughs> tensions there that make Israel not, not welcome <laughs> in the rest of the region. Right. But there's also, uh, outside of the, the beta breakaway team, I noted, uh, three other breakaway teams that, uh, Goldblatt was talking about, which and they're, they're specifically founded as we're not going to be racist, <laughs> we're not going to exclude people um, from the, from this team. Everyone is welcome to play for this team. Yeah, and the, and the Hapoel teams, right? Which are which are um, there's Hapoel uh, Tel Aviv. Yeah, I believe there's a Hapoel um, Jerusalem as well. Although I may be getting that one wrong, but those are those are linked to the labor movements, um, and and so you know are more inclusive uh, and and not you know not reactionary in their politics and there's also i noted there was one moment where essentially the ultra right wing in israel that wanted 
no football on Saturdays. Uh, it was sort of ultra ultra orthodox, I guess you would call it. Um, that, that that the idea that Shabbat that nothing should happen. So they tried to uh, ban football on Saturdays in Israel, and apparently that got quite far through the legislative process, but was ultimately defeated, which kind of <laughs> suggests that there's there's certain lengths um, even uh, ultra orthodox Israel won't go to. Well, isn't that a theme throughout the 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 book? You know, throughout this chapter, where you know the state or 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 you know, for different reasons, the state and the mosque would like to ban football. Um, the mosque yeah. because it's immodest and you know it shows too much skin and you know is like they find all these reasons in the you know the religious text to to ban it. And then the state because they are sort of wild places where you know, frustrations um, sort of boil up and, and you get like chanting and, and solidarity among fans. And yet in in neither case are they able really to to do so. And so that to me, you know, comes back to this theme of like soccer being a venue for dissent, for for free thought, for, you know, if there's going to be a movement to to push back against authority, it's going to be, you know, which is a theme of David's introduction, it's going to be in a, in a soccer stadium and not, not the corporate, um, not the corporate, uh, uh, you know, luxury suites, mm-hmm. but the, you know, the, the cheap seats, the, the curvas where, where, you know, basically another detail I love is that every, basically every, uh, national tradition in, in North Africa and the Middle East takes, takes it from Italy where, where people are really, really militant and, and fantastic in some ways. So yeah. Um, yeah, I and, totally, and totally da- love that. David's thesis is essentially that the three, the three things, right? The mosque, the regime and the street are always in, varying degrees of alignment right and it's all about the, or, or uh, conflict yeah or co- conflict or alignment yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of it is sometimes yeah um i think of it as the regime especially trying to maintain a balance between not letting the streets overflow with rage and not annoying the mosque or the religious leaders too much and trying to trying to keep themselves in power essentially in the middle yeah and and i think one one big really big section of this chapter we haven't even touched on yet is Iran, right? Yeah. And, and a, a giant section of, of that section is about women and the fact that in Iran, I believe it's the only country in the world, he says, where women aren't allowed in the stadium. Yeah, because um, even in Saudi Arabia, they now have the demarcated sort of family or female zones, right? right so yeah, right, Iran's right. the only place where women are not not getting into stadiums. Yeah, I, I found that so interesting. And um and, and and then there was there was this this woman who was um she would disguise herself as a man and yeah. sneak into stadiums and then and then post so, selfies of herself and and he said that you know he wrote that um you know people in the stadium were helping to you know conceal her from from the authorities and and pass her around and just sort of you know help her remain aloof from 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 being caught and mm-hmm. and I loved that it was like you know this is like. It is. It's so. It is depressing, right? It, I, I feel you. I, I know where you're coming from with that. But it's also when you see this, it's like the human spirit is just so hard to to stamp it out. And and there's like as long as people are trying, there are going to be people who are resisting. And and here are these, you know. And often they it ends brutally, and it's really hard to read. Like this was not an easy chapter to read. Don't get me wrong, but man, yeah, reading about that kind of thing was just so. Heartening, and then there's the quote from the woman in Saudi Arabia when they let them in. There, she was like, "I cannot describe to you how happy this makes me." And I was like, "I, I believe you, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like if you, like if you just want such a simple pleasure as to go watch a soccer game, you know, something I take for granted, um, man, I, I can't imagine what what that's like not to be able to do that and then to be able to do it and like yeah. how, how happy that must make you. Imagine how many times you haven't gone to a Tampa Bay Rowdies home game. <laughs> yeah, I've just chosen not to. <laughs> you know, like I'm going to stay home and play Mario Kart. And 
yeah, no. Uh, you know, Afghanistan is another one, Daryl. I know you said you didn't want to go country by country, but I, I, I no, do want to say, like, do you remember um, the, the the little boy who wore the messy, the, the shopping bag that was, like, blue and white striped, and, and his brother, I think, wrote messy 10 on the back, and it, yeah. the photo went viral? Yeah, and I'm sure, did, I'm sure everybody listening, if you're on social media, you've seen that image. Yeah. But here's the thing, like, that became like a big moment and Barcelona, you know, flew him, I think to, to, uh, the, 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 the now camp or the camp. Now I always get that, uh, backwards. Um, and, uh, and, and made a big thing of it. But then I, I didn't know the coda to that story, which is that the family was receiving so many death threats. They had to move, I think to Pakistan. Yeah. And so, um, which is like really terrible. And, and it sort of made me think about the nature of like, you know, publicizing things like this. And, and so, you know, it's, it's like, it's great when, when it aids in like the message a team is trying to tell about itself. And then when it leaves the spotlight, like, you know, there's just like no, there's no safeguard against yeah. it turning really ugly. And there's a sort of selfishness on, on our part, or at least on the media's part of just enjoying the cute story about the blue and white striped bag and how nice that is. And then you get yeah. Messi's involvement, which is uh, very headline worthy. Um, I didn't know the, the coda to that story until I read this book. It seems that, that the story of them being sort of forced into exile, it's not as fun. or It's not as fun. It doesn't have an element of celebrity. And so that story doesn't get published as often. Right. Yeah. Um, really, really depressing. But I think the last thing I wanted, you know, I'm looking at my notes and the last thing that I wanted to bring up was um, he, he talks about ISIS and how they replaced, I believe, in in. The, a part of Syria where they were, where they where they held a lot of land, they replaced referees with kisas. Uh, I don't know how you say it. It's Q I S A S. It's a traditional form of justice and and like blood money. Yeah. And um, like that, the image of that for me was so, just so rich. Like it made me think. This is maybe inappropriate, but it made me think to where I play, um, or where I played before the the lockdown, um, cinco and. I, I always complain about the refs there. They're just like really bad, uh, which I, you know, it's not nothing against them. I just think that like, you know, if I were, you know, whatever, um, everyone's had a run in with a, with an amateur ref. Um, yeah. but I've, I've, off, I've, I've argued that like, if you just let us govern ourselves, like if you just took refs out of the equation, like we would, every, every game would become more fair. And do you really think that, um, I do like in a society where like, well, I, like I, I realize the irony here, but like in a society where like guns and like uh, violence are not um, are, are not like how we solve our problems usually, um, <laughs> I do like it's usually people who know each other and you know want to be honorable. Um, but it made me really want to dig into this detail and like find out how did this work in Syria? Like, what yeah. an interesting experiment, and what a, like I'm sure there were some terrible, terrible outcomes of this, like. Passions run high uh, and run hot when you play soccer. But um, yeah, if I was to critique this chapter, I would almost say there's too much in it and too many threads of fascinating stories that only get a paragraph or so. Um, and I think that that attempt to completely change the way the way a soccer match is governed and have it governed more according to um, a form of Islamic law. I agree with you. It's fascinating. I could have read uh, like you know ten pages on that absolutely mm -hmm. about what what worked and what didn't and. Uh, maybe what lessons football could take and maybe things that could be implemented. Um, and was it popular? Was it not popular? Uh, yeah, I really think maybe there just isn't enough information out there. Because I know, I know David is a sort of meticulous researcher. So I'm going to guess that maybe he found as much as he could find. 
Yeah. And, and just to like, just to be really careful, um, you know, it's not a thought experiment, right? This is like a place where people were being murdered like every day and it's a, a terrible place. And so, <laughs> you yeah, know, sorry, yeah, um, and so we should be careful about that. But also like uh, what really struck me and hit home, you know, like a real gut punch at the end of that section was where he said, you know, when, when ISIS was defeated there and, and things returned to normal, um, they held, they held a four, yes. a four team soccer tournament under the normal rules. He made clear that it was under the normal rules yeah, and the universal and, football rules, I believe. Is yeah. The and, and that was, that was like, that was like the cathartic or, or, you know, the experience that like said things are normal again. And, and that was like, uh, you know, given what had just happened, that was the revolutionary event, which was just like, again, it just hit me. You know? Yeah. Like, so wow. maybe that, that's the more important narrative point, right? Is that um, some repressive regime tried to make the game be played under different rules, but eventually the universal football rules uh, win out as a, almost as a, a like a, a retrospective protest. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good, it's a good place for me at least to, to, this is where I sort of, it sums up for me, right? I mean, this is a struggle and it's an ongoing struggle and like, it's just there's a lot of stark <laughs> uh, <laughs> conflicts here in this region and um, soccer. Like the, the value of soccer for us is like, man, it really illuminates a lot of these and helps us understand them in a way that you know might might be really difficult to get into otherwise. I I, I do really wish Taylor had joined us for this one because I'd love to hear about um, you know Iraq, but uh, but you know I, I know he's, um, <laughs> he's he's spoken about that before. But he, uh, he had promised to read along. I'd be interested to know if he read the second chapter in time for this show i'm gonna guess not just because we've been kind of busy with total soccer show stuff so yeah. he might he might not have got around to it so so have you changed your mind about um about this chapter like uh, do you is it really as yeah. bad as you thought it was i think i mean i mean still going through it just the 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 volume of the repressive regime winning versus the volume of the little bits of hope and human spirit um it's still it gives me a like a, a sort of um what's the word it brings me down a little bit but i think just going through with you and um hearing again the the moments of rebellion the moments of pushing back um i i definitely at least take your point that those little moments give you hope yeah i mean and it's not really about hope versus versus depression right it's, it's, for me it's not no. about that it's about like learning about this part of the world and like what can we learn about it through this like universal thing that we all experience to me that's what's so interesting yeah and and here we are like <laughs> so much of this is 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 brought out and sort of elevated and and brought into relief by by this game that we understand it's like the way into understanding all of this is so so useful in that in that way and so i really appreciate the game i appreciate david i appreciate you know you talking about this with me like it was just you know i love it that's 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 why i love soccer and that's a really dorky <laughs> reason to love it but man it's so so interesting i want to ask you a kind of personal question um you have sort of uh ancestral ties to the middle east right so did, did this ring any closer to home for you than say it did for me did, did, oh, did certain um, things resonate more than they would with you know uh, uh, someone who has no tie to the middle east at all i don't know i like my my ties are pretty pretty removed like my dad left when he was in the in like in the 50s um and uh yeah i i I, like he doesn't speak, he doesn't speak Farsi. He doesn't speak Urdu. Um, so just to like, his dad was, his dad was Pakistani. His mother was Persian, uh, is Persian. Um, and so he doesn't really have, like he grew up in a, in an orphanage in, in London, outside of London. So he, he doesn't really have that, that cultural 
affiliation and right. and and hasn't lived there for a very long time like since he was six um so not really um although like i don't know uh <laughs> it's like easy to see like my grandma was this amazing woman who or is this amazing woman who like asked for a divorce in 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 the shah's iran and that's like a that was like a you know you could do that then um but but it was still like not necessarily she was a she's a very bold yeah. woman and so like just reading about her and like then reading about these this the iranian woman's um you know fight to be in the stadium there were echoes of that for me like for sure uh so i guess so actually yeah <laughs> in that so, way but yeah, so then you see yeah. the sort of the history of uh essentially strong women stand, standing up to things yeah like she doesn't take shit from anybody like it's really <laughs> really tough lady and so i can totally see that but yeah i mean like but like yeah i I don't know i mean i guess i hadn't thought about it much till till you asked but but yeah all right should we wrap it up there then george let's do it buddy Uh, this was really great thank you yeah thank you i always enjoy the i always enjoy these chats um yeah the next chapter is about uh south american football i believe i haven't read ahead i've just seen the uh the chapter heading and it's called from the left wing um so I want to prepare you. There's going to be some critiques of socialism in there, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, although, you know, like in in the world, like the left has had probably its most success, like electorally and, and in terms of like actually gaining power and ruling in South America. So, um, you know, I think it'll be interesting. It'll be really, really, really interesting. All right. So we'll do the, the time frame between uh, chapter one and chapter two ended up being two weeks. I'm going to guess it's going to be roughly the same if people are waiting for the, the chapter three conversation. Um, a lot of people have bought the book. I've, I've found I've got emails and seen a few tweets from people buying the book to read along with us. So I hope people I hope more people will buy the book and read along with us. And I hope people will read chapter three in time for the next episode in a couple of weeks. Do it. Come on. Get the book. It's great. It's a really good book. Uh, and we're still planning to have uh, the author on the show at some point, right? To uh, to go over some of this stuff with us. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know, I don't think he's too busy right now. But. Yeah. <laughs> All right, George, I will close by saying thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks, dude. Appreciate it. Listeners, thank you for listening. And we will talk to you again very soon. Did I do that right?